Let us pray. <clears throat> My gracious Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being there. We thank you for watching over us and giving us the health that we have. Pray that you would continue to uphold and sustain us and bless us as we continue in this worship and that the things that are said would be truth and in harmony with your word and you might sanctify it to the hearts of those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Taking up here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 20, he said, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. I don't know about uh, your Bible, but mine on that I stand in doubt of you has a marginal reference that I am perplexed for you, which is uh, a good translation because in Paul writing to the congregations in Galatia and in that region, he was concerned as to whether what he was saying would come across in the right spirit. And that's the reason that he says, I desire to be present with you. In other words, he wished that he was there in person to teach them and to guide them and to direct them because sometimes in writing something down, particularly in a letter, unless one is very skillful when trying to broach a sensitive subject, it may come across as curt and short and uh, be misunderstood. Because writing a letter and writing things down, as we said, can come across as cold and uncaring, whereas if the same thing were said in person, it might be received in an entirely different spirit. Many of us, and I really put myself in this category, are not skillful in conveying our sentiments and feelings in speech, much less in writing. Like I said, I've wished for years that I was a far better 
communicator than what I am. I was raised in a family that we, uh, there was, there was love, there was respect, but, uh, we just kindly, uh, said things pretty flat, uh, pretty straightforward. And, uh, I know I was the, <laughs> I was the baby of the family and there were no sisters uh, in, didn't have any sisters. And so I learned at a very young age to uh, clean the house, dust the furniture. We had to move everything when we dusted. We swept under the bed when we cleaned and things of that nature. I remember when we bought our first vacuum cleaner. Uh, I, I kind of thought the millennium had come. <laughs> I didn't even know what the millennium was back then, but I thought that was the best thing that could come down down the pike. And I washed dishes, and so I learned to do a lot of housework with my mother, and we did a lot of picking at each other, and uh, you know, just having a good time, and saying things back and forth, but if you were to uh, come in the house and hear us sometimes, you might think that we were miffed at each other or might even think we were mad or something because of our just straightforward talking and we never thought anything about it. We just uh, had a good time in, uh, in our folly in that. And so uh, I do know that Though I haven't graduated by a long shot, uh, after I became a minister, I had to learn to curtail some of that uh, because I was often misunderstood. But Paul, rather, like I said, he wished that he was present so that he would not be misunderstood. He said, notice that I desire to be present with you and to change my voice. Uh, let's look at some of the other places where Paul mentions something of this nature. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Well, that didn't look right because I was in 1 Corinthians. Let me get over here to 2 Corinthians. We'll start in verse 2. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort 
I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, excuse me, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. But now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. So what Paul was saying here is that when he wrote his first epistle to them and corrected them, you know in 1 Corinthians there was a lot of things wrong with the congregation at Corinth. But I think he's kindly centering upon one thing in particular is that when... Uh, the man had taken his father's wife and Paul writes to them that they were to exclude that man. Uh, the reason Paul had the congregation to exercise congregational dis discipline was more for the congregation's sake than it was for the man that was con committing the sin. We can go back and read that. Uh, and the reason was because they were actually bragging about this sin in the congregation. If you'll go back to 1 Corinthians 5, he says your glorying is not good. And in other words, they were talking about their Christian liberty and Christ had died for their sins and this man was living with his father's wife. And Paul said... Uh, even Gentiles don't go that, do that bad. But I wonder what Paul would say today. But anyway, uh, and they were glorying in it. And he writes for them to exclude the man. And then later in this second epistle, uh, he talks about uh, restoring the man because he had grieved enough. But Paul said, I wrote this letter to you and, well, to use uh, his own words, though I made you sorry with a letter, verse 8, I do not repent, though I did repent. So what do you mean? Paul double-minded? No. He's saying something to this effect. This is in my words, not Paul's, because I don't know exactly how he was thinking, but he writes the letter to them, and after he wrote it, I'll put it in my way I would be, man, did I write the right thing? Should I have said it that way? Should I have said it another way? 
Maybe I should have done it this way instead of that way. In other words, Paul had a repentant or a, a, a change of mind in wondering whether he should have written it one way or the other. But he said, you repented. And he said, I made you sorry in a letter. I do not repent, for I perceive the same epistle have made you sorry, though it were but for a season. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but you sorrowed to repentance. I wrote the letter. I regret causing you sorrow. But I'm glad that you did sorrow and repent. And you did what you should have done. And so you can see Paul having this same attitude with the Corinthians as he had with the Galatians. Drop down to verse 12 of the same epistle in 2 Corinthians. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done wrong. In other words, the man that had, was sleeping with his father's wife, he said, I wrote unto you to exclude him, not because he had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong. That would be his father. But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Even now, it was right that the man should be excluded. But the main point that Paul was making here is that the congregation needed to repent as much as anything, if not more so than the man. Because as I said back in 1 Corinthians 5, they were glorying in this man's sin. In fact, let's just hold your finger there. I'm going to turn back. If you want to turn, you can. But if you want to just uh, stay there while I turn and read it. First Corinthians five verse one it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. These people that were professing to be Christians. Here was a sin being committed that the heathens didn't even do. And then he says in verse 2, And ye are puffed up, and have not mourned. In other words, they were bragging about it. Almost makes you think about our society today. In fact, this past week, 
I read where a pastor in Indiana got up and confessed of adultery that he had committed, started 20 years ago, and I don't remember exactly how long it lasted. And it started with a 16-year-old girl that was a member of the congregation. And even the girl finally got up and accused the pastor and talked about how wrong he had done her and so on. But he got up and asked the congregation to forgive him and all of that. And uh, reportedly, as I read it, uh, the congregation not only forgave him, but uh, gave him a standing ovation. That's, that's what's going on in so-called Christian congregations. You say, well, what should they have done? Well, I don't know what all they should have done. I'm not even going to go into that part about it. But the thing that, I mean, if he was truly repentant, and he did resign, I assume he, uh, they accepted his resignation, and he should have resigned, but uh, what all, I mean, if a, if a person is truly repentant, they should grant forgiveness. But the video that I saw did not appear that he had remorse as much as he was just stating the fact. And But I don't know his heart. I'll have to leave that with God. But the thing that really, really upset me was the fact that the article that I read said that there was a standing ovation for him at the end. Makes me think of Corinth. How that they were bragging, puffed up. And so Paul writes the letter to them and then he writes in this Second Corinthians, you know, he says, "I'm, I'm sorry that I made you. Re- uh, uh, I didn't repent. That I made you sorry, though I did repent." In other words, uh, he wasn't. He questioned what, uh, what might happen for his writing, but he was thankful that he made them sorry with a godly sorrow that brought true repentance my point is this Paul was fearful that his letter might be misunderstood in the 10th chapter of 2nd Corinthians Verse 9, Paul writes, 
that I may seem as if I would terrify you by letters, for his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letter, when we are absent, such will we also will we be also indeed when we are present. So the 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 report had already gone out that Paul's letters were harsh. They were weighty. But we must remember that Paul was an apostle and 1 Corinthians was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And though they may have been straightforward and harsh in some ways, it brought repentance. But Paul wasn't indifferent about it. For in chapter 11 of verse 6, he said, Though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Now much more could be written uh, and we, other verses given to show that Paul was sensitive. And he realized that his letters sometimes might, have come, might come across with far more far rougher than what he intended. But sometimes, beloved, you don't know how to say it any other way. You know, you can try to be so nice and so flirty in your language that it just goes over people's head and they don't get the point at all. When Nathan went before David, he said straightforward, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. And very few people today take rebuke when they have sinned as they ought. In fact, the common census is today, you don't have the right to tell me anything. But you can't read the Scriptures and get that idea. Luther summarized it this way. To be brief, I would gladly convert you by my letters, that is to say, call you back from the law to the faith of Jesus Christ. But I fear that I shall not do it so by dead letter. But if I were with you, and if I were present, I could change my voice, I could reprove them bitterly that are obstinate, and comfort the weak with sweet and loving words as occasion should require. So it's easier to talk with a group of people. You might need to speak with one person one way and another person another. But when you're writing the letter to the congregation, it might have a whole different uh, appearance and spirit about it. I think you know what I'm trying to say, that
Paul was afraid his letter might be too straightforward and might not bring about the desired effect that, that he desired. Now we're going to try to cover the rest of the chapter. So I'll read verses 21 through 31. Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? Do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by bondmaid, the other by free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that beareth not, break forth and cry, thou that travaileth not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuteth him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scriptures? The Scripture. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. <coughs> Paul is discussing the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's using uh, <coughs> Abraham with his two wives. He's using Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. He's using the two locations of worship, Sinai and Jerusalem, and making a parallelism with the two covenants of grace and works. And he's doing this in an allegory. Now, a lot of people, especially when they're talking about prophecy, they will come to this verse of Scripture or this passage and talk about an allegory and how Scriptures have allegories. And then they'll go off in Revelation and they'll make up things with the various verses and read into it what you don't know what they're talking about. But Paul says, this is an allegory. He said, what I'm saying to you is an allegory. While there are types and shadows throughout the Scriptures,
And while there are symbolisms and metaphors in the Old and the New Testament, this is the only place it's really, really called an allegory. In other words, an allegory is a story, picture, or poem that portrays with symbols to reveal a hidden meaning. When men try to take prophecy and use a story or a picture or a poem or a verse of Scripture to reveal a hidden meaning, most of the time the hidden meaning is something they came up with, with them out of their own mind. Because Scripture doesn't say what they say, the Scripture says it says. Here Paul says, I'm using this as an allegory and I'm telling you what these things are. In other words, Paul didn't leave anybody to guess what he was talking about. He made it quite clear. And so, like I said, you have the two wives, the two sons, the two locations, the two covenants. The two wives are Sarah and Hagar. Hagar was the bondwoman. Sarah was the free woman or the woman of promise. The two sons were Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was by the bondwoman. Isaac was by the free woman. The two locations were Sinai and Jerusalem. Sinai was the law. Jerusalem was grace. And the two covenants, well, there they are, law and grace. So he's taking these two, this dualism of wives, sons, and locations, this dualism of, of each one of these to show the thing, the difference between law and grace. The bondwoman is subject to the free woman. Ishmael was subject to Isaac. Sinai is subject to Jerusalem. And law is subject to grace. In other words, Paul is using this to show that though Abraham had two wives, that Hagar... who was the bondwoman, was subject to the free. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael was subject to Isaac. And just as Sinai is subject to Jerusalem, therefore the law is subject to grace. In other words, Paul was showing that grace is inferior to the... I mean, excuse me. Got that backwards. Paul was showing that the law was inferior to grace. And he's using this in a picture story. Freedom. Justification. The promise is found in the free woman. 
in Isaac, in Jerusalem, in grace. And since the Galatians were essentially Gentiles, the prophecy declares that there are more Gentile believers than Jewish. Notice this. Notice what he says in verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that beareth not. That's Gentiles. Break forth and cry thou that travaileth not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. In other words, it, in, it seems to indicate that God, has, that God was going to save and is saving more among the Gentiles than of the Jews. Let's look at some of... Uh, well, he, Isaiah... I mean, Galatians 4.27 is basically a quote from Isaiah 54. Let's turn to Isaiah 54. Starting at verse 1. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Now we're talking about Gentiles. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. What's he talking about here? You've got a tent here. But we need to make the tent bigger. And we need to make the cords that hold up the tent. They need to be longer. And the stakes need to be stronger. Why? Verse 3, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. In other words, it appears from there and what Paul was saying in Galatians that there are more Gentile Christians than there are Jewish Christians. More Gentiles justified than Jews. You say, well, weren't all the Jews under the law saved? No. You remember Romans 9 where Paul said that it's not because, it's not because you're the seed of Abraham that one is under the promise, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, not in Ishmael. By the way, Ishmael had 12 sons also. He was made a mighty nation. The reason 
They're still fighting over there in Palestine and Jordan and uh, Gaza Strip and Egypt and all of that because of Ishmael and Isaac's descendants. But it, there's just a very small remnant of Jews under the law that were saved. Scripture says it was a, a remnant according to the election of grace. In fact, look in Deuteronomy, I believe it's 32, I don't have it didn't put this in my notes. Well, I can't find what I'm looking for. I'm even looking at some of the other passages, verses, chapters here. But it said, that God had not given the Israelites a spirit of belief until that day. Indicating that all those that came out of Egypt were in unbelief. I probably don't have it un underlined in this Bible. But... Uh, Well, I can't find it right now and I won't take up any more time. But the thing about it is it appears that uh, they didn't even have a heart to believe when they came out of Egypt. And it was because of unbelief that they did not go into the, the promised land. Well, there are some other passages in the New Testament that seems to indicate a large number of Gentiles. Look in Romans chapter 9. Large number of Gentiles, maybe more than Jews, have salvation. Romans chapter 9, verse 25. As he saith also in Osi, that is in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. 
Now I want to turn back to Hosea chapter 2 to look at that where he quoted that. If I remember correctly, I think there's some more information there. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. And then in verse back in chapter 1 of Hosea verse 10 yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured nor numbered and it shall come to pass that in that place where it was said unto them you are not my people there it shall be said unto them you are the sons of the living God so indicating there is a large group that are to be saved among the among the Gentiles and possibly even more that were of Jewish descent. And so as Paul was talking to these Galatians who were mainly Gentiles and these Jews who were trying to get them to go back under the law, Paul said, you're trying to get them to go back unto that which not only is inferior in its religion, inferior in its grace, but possibly inferior in the numbers. But there are some that do not believe that this is talking about possibly greater Gentiles being saved than Israelites. And they're just saying that this is just merely a referring to the Old Testament economy versus the New Testament economy, that is, law versus grace. But in either way, the law does not produce righteous children, whereas grace does. And the text says that the desolate has more children which, following the analogy, means that there are more children of the law than of grace. Notice what it says there again, verse 27. Thou travailest for the desolate hath more children than she which hath an husband. So if the desolate here is the law and the husband is grace, And that's saying there are more people lost than are saved. So you've got something to work with in either case. But believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are children of the free woman and not of the bondwoman. That is, they're not of the law. The believers are not under the law. 
Our justification is of the promise, that is, of grace, and not of the law or works that engenders bondage. Luther said of these allegories, To use allegories is often a very dangerous thing. For unless a man have the perfect knowledge of Christian doctrine, he cannot use allegories rightly and as he should. That's the reason I, I, I just stay away from allegories. Because, like you said, unless, unless, you, unless you know exactly what's being talked about, you know, you can't take a verse of prophecy or any verse of Scripture and make it mean something different or other than what it says and says that it's an allegory. Because God didn't say it was an allegory. Who are you to say it's an allegory? But here Paul said this is an allegory. So we can... We don't, and he tells what the allegory is and what it's in teaching. Well, Lord willing, we'll take up in chapter 5 next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. Whether there are more Jews or Gentiles that are saved than the other, we just thank You that salvation is by grace, not by law. We thank You that we are not to go back under the works of the law, even our own laws, in any way seeking for the promise. It was given to us by grace and grace alone. In Christ we pray and thank you. Amen.